Welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. This is your host, Brett Hawes. Uh, we're back with a, another awesome episode today uh, with my guest, Kerry Gillum. Uh, I don't really have any major announcements today. Um, one thing I will say, especially in light of uh, today's topic, um, I will be speaking at the March Against Monsanto rally. So check out the show notes for the link to that. That will be in Toronto on May 25th. And uh, I will also be having Jeffrey Smith. Uh, he'll be on the podcast in a couple of weeks from now. And uh, we're going to sort of get into this a little bit more. And he's got some things that he'll be sharing with you as well. So uh, without further delay, uh, let's just hop right into today's episode. Uh, Carrie Gillum is an award-winning investigative journalist. Uh, she has spent decades um, working for Reuters. Uh, she now works as an independent journalist. And uh, with she's with US uh, Right to Know, uh, which is a nonprofit group. Uh, she's also the author of Whitewashed, which is uh, a pretty scathing expose, if you will, on Monsanto, uh, Roundup, or glyphosate, and some of the implications and impact that that's having. So our conversation today meanders through a few different areas, but uh, the main thrust is obviously focusing on uh, Monsanto, on Roundup and glyphosate, and the issues surrounding that. Uh in Carrie's book, you know, she spends a good chunk of time with farmers, and so we hear directly from those people in the book, and we sort of discuss their stories, at least some of them. Uh, we discuss the journey so far, so the history of glyphosate and what we've been told and what is actually happening and manifesting in the world right now. Uh, she talks a lot about um, how in the recent court cases, so there are two court cases where plaintiffs have actually won in their uh, lawsuits against Monsanto, and we sort of picked those cases apart a little bit and talk about the sort of heated debate that's happening in the public space and you know the the science um, done by independent uh, scientists proving that Monsanto is linked to some forms of cancer and of course we're just hearing from government and from Monsanto that that's not the case and one of the biggest things that I gleaned from this episode it's a real snapshot but it really resonated with me is everyone is trying to refute the science that shows that it causes harm where there is no science to actually show that it doesn't cause harm, which is very interesting. And as you'll hear on today's episode, a lot of um, you know information that's been buried, that's been hidden from public view and so on. So uh, I, today's a great episode. Um, definitely want to share with friends and family as always. Um, but this is a hot button topic and it affects us all because we all eat food. So I'm going to leave it at that today. Uh, this is a fantastic episode. I had a great time talking to Kerry and uh, I look forward to bringing you some more uh, episodes on GMOs, glyphosate and so on. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing, leaving us a review and most importantly, sharing this with your friends, family, and community. Uh, I'll leave it at that, and thanks as always for tuning in. Without further delay, here is Kerry Gillum. Hi, Kerry. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, uh, your I want to sort of plant a couple of flags for us and um, unpack the story as best as possible without um, sort of laboring over points. Uh, there's definitely some things I would love to talk about. But before we get into um, your latest book, Whitewashed, and before we get into um, some of the key points around there, 
perhaps give us a little bit of background about yourself and your sort of journalistic career and how you got into all of this in the first place. Oh my, well, sure. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Um, so I've been a journalist for over 30 years, a really long time. <laughs> I never <laughs> wanted to be anything but a journalist. Um, from the time I was, I think, 11 or 12, when people first start saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I wanted to be a journalist. I, a journalist or a lawyer, um, I, I found, you know, people and their stories and their lives and experiences just fascinating. And I thought a job where, you know, it, it was your assignment to go out and learn about these interesting people and interesting events and then tell everybody else and actually get paid for it. I mean, you know, what could be better than that? So um, I've worked for, you know, numerous um, news outlets. Reuters was uh, my longest stint, a national correspondent for the international news agency Reuters covering uh, corporate America. And uh, my chief assignment starting in 1998 was to learn everything I could about this company called Monsanto, which was revolutionizing agriculture in the 1990s by introducing genetically engineered seeds. And of course, they had the um, the very big uh, Roundup uh, brand. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, that's what I've done really for the last 20 years is focus on agriculture, agribusiness, food production, looking at, you know, modern agricultural practices and what the pesticides that are being uh, used in conjunction with these genetically altered seeds, what, what those are doing to our health and to our environment. Hmm. And so assuming then you obviously got access to a lot of uh, insider information and closed door meetings and so on. Yeah. So what Monsanto likes to do and others, Dow and DuPont and Syngenta and those, you know, they really like to woo journalists and um, bring them in and show them their test fields and their, um, you know, corn chippers and sit down, let you sit down with the corporate executives and the marketing people and the scientists and, uh, you know, learn everything you can from their perspective and of course it's their hope that you will um, then bring their narrative to the world uh, but what i found after a few years I, you know it, i mean it wasn't apparent right away i was new to covering food and agriculture but when you start also spending a lot of time with farmers and with scientists and environmental scientists and agronomists and uh, lawmakers and regulators you you learn that Monsanto's narrative doesn't always match up with you know the reality on the ground, and uh, so over time they became less enamored of my reporting for Reuters, and uh, I haven't been inside their headquarters now for you know, two or three years. So so do you, do you feel I mean uh, sort of Captain Obvious here amongst you and myself here, but uh, for some folks who might not know this, you know, do you feel that there is um, Monsanto and companies like that are pushing their narrative and because of the way that they conduct their business, the sort of the, the press release, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, government bodies and whatnot are all sort of buying into that narrative. And then that just becomes sort of law, if you will, or policy. Yeah, I mean, as I lay out in my book, it's, it's sort of a, a very nuanced situation. You know, there are, I think our regulatory agencies, you know, really do endeavor to a degree to do their jobs, to protect us, to protect the public. But you have that um, colored with, uh, you know, political pressure. 
and the lobbying that goes on in Washington, D.C., and all of the money that flows to lawmakers and lawmakers who pressure the political appointees of these regulatory agencies. And, um, you know, from our, our newest administration, the Trump administration, you've seen a lot of pressure um, upon the EPA specifically for trying to just do the right thing with protecting people from certain chemicals that we know are really, really doing damage. Um, you know, in particular, an insecticide that's important to Dow Chemical that the Trump administration has been bending over backwards to keep on the market, even though the science shows us how dangerous it is to children. And there are numerous examples of that. So, um, you know, it's, it is definitely part of their business plan for these companies, Monsanto, Dow, DuPont, the others, to push their agenda, um, to push for public policies that support their profit motives. Um, you know, I mean, I, it wouldn't be surprising, you know, they're trying to make money and uh, trying to mm -hmm. do the best they can for shareholders and, and achieve, you know, double digit profit growth. Um, but, but it does become dangerous for the rest of us when their power and their sway in Washington, D.C. gets to the degree that we've seen with Monsanto. Right, because much like the, you know, the pharmaceutical industry um, and the FDA, you know, it's sort of a revolving door uh, between the, the the top brass of both of those organizations. Do, is, is that the same with the EPA and these chemical companies? Is there a similar sort of relationship going on? Yes, there definitely is. You do see people from industry, you know, we, we've seen it just recently. I mean, you see people from industry move backwards and forwards and, and in and out and you know, we have people in there now who are supposed to be recusing themselves from um, certain matters, but uh, but they're not. Uh, you know, it again, it's you know, it's Washington politics. It's the way the game is played, I suppose. Um, and it's it's very alarming for those of us who really rely on and and feel we're entitled to you know public protection from our regulators. Mm -hmm. Well, especially when you're talking about the food that we eat. I mean, it, it's not like we're talking about something that's abstract or doesn't affect everyone. I mean, this literally affects every single person because we all eat food. And, um, you know, I sort of want to we'll get into the history of uh, glyphosate in just a second. But, um, you know, what what have you sort of noticed over the last, say, 20 years since you, you know, in your career, what have you noticed in terms of the increased use of pesticides, insecticides? Um, you know, we'll talk about this sort of quote unquote cover ups um, and the, the skewing of science as well. But have you noticed that this has just progressively got more and more um, pervasive and, and worse, for lack of a better word? Uh, or are people starting, you know, the pushback that we're getting from the public now, is that actually starting to have some sort of impact uh, with lawmakers and so on? Uh, well, there's a lot of ways to answer that, I suppose. Um, I, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the data, which as a journalist, I'm driven by data, and my book is just all very heavily documented data. So if you look at the government data, um, you can see that certain the, the use of certain chemicals and certain insecticides has declined um, over the last, say, 20 years, 25 years. The use of others has climbed, has increased. Uh, glyphosate in particular, uh, the active ingredient in Roundup, the weed killer, is the most widely used weed killer in the world now, glyphosate, and its use has skyrocketed. It's gone from approximately 
40 million pounds a year of use in the United States in the 90s to close to 300 million pounds of use in the United States every year now. So, you know, that's an important data point. If you look at residue levels uh, that the FDA and USDA track in our food, pesticide residue levels, um, you can see that uh, their, their levels are the highest in the last 10 years. Um, so they're pervasive. Right. Um, the pervasiveness of pesticide residues in our foods is at a very high level now compared to where it was, uh, say, 10, 15 years ago. Um, you look at different pesticides, uh, you know, and, and different pesticides, of course, the science shows us different health impacts, different environmental impacts. Um, so it's not, you know, a straight line. It's not one easy answer to your question necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. Scientists overall are saying we need to start paying attention to this. We need to be concerned because, as you say, we all eat. And you have a choice whether or not you want to spray an insecticide or a weed killer in your yard or if you're a farmer, if you want to use it. You don't really have much of a choice if you're someone who's eating and drinking <laughs> And right. this stuff to your kids, and you don't know, you know, what levels of these invisible traces of insecticides, fungicides, and weed killers might be in the fruit and vegetables that you're putting on your kids' dinner plate. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I'll just sort of add to that as well. We're obviously starting to see now the increased use of genetically modified crops um, globally. And, you know, over the last 20 years, that has also skyrocketed. And I think one sort of uh, point that I would like to clearly establish, and you, you wrote this in your book, is, you know, GMOs don't equal glyphosate, which I think is an important distinction to make. Um, you know, I've sort of made that distinction over the years in classes and teaching and whatnot, where I sort of sit on the fence with the genetically modified component, you know, in terms of the actual genetic modification of a food. I sit on the fence, but, you know, because these foods are genetically engineered to withstand um, chemicals like Roundup and glyphosate, um, you know, the intention originally was, oh, we're going to use less of the chemical because the crops are more resistant, et cetera, et cetera. And now what we're finding is, is quite the opposite, in fact, that as GMOs become planted, um, you know, more around the world, um, glyphosate use actually has increased. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. or? Uh, to a degree, initially, I mean, it was always, Roundup Ready crops were always designed to increase the use of glyphosate, always. That was the purpose, that was the intent. Monsanto's patent was expiring in the year 2000, and they wanted to keep a hold on that glyphosate market, and they talked to their investors about it. And so this is why they developed these genetically engineered seeds that were designed to tolerate being sprayed directly with Roundup, because they knew if they could sell these seeds and they could bundle it and tie it to sales of Roundup, they would profit from that and sales would, would go up because farmers would be more inclined to use use that herbicide and they could use it more mm -hmm. uh, and they could use it as a desiccant and they could use it multiple times in a season if they wanted to. Now, insecticides, yeah. Monsanto also released and developed, and other companies have, an insect-resistant uh, crop. And that did result in a decline in insecticide use because you didn't need to use it because the plant in, in, in and of itself was toxic to the pests, to the insects. Right. Now, you have seen... You have seen, um, as you have with glyphosate, Mother Nature adapts. So the insect-resistant crops were great at first, but now the insects have adapted, and so now farmers are finding they have to use these insecticides again. 
and the glyphosate tolerant crops, the corn and the soy and canola and cotton and wheat, uh, not wheat, um, sugar beet, uh, have also, the weeds in those farm fields have also developed resistance. And so farmers, you know, have tried, they're using two or three times more glyphosate. Now they're using glyphosate and dicamba or glyphosate and 2,4-D and they're combining and using more and more of these herbicides because the overuse of glyphosate in the first place caused weeds to become so resistant. Now they, they are struggling to figure out how to kill them. So they've created sort of a pesticide dependent uh, treadmill that they're finding it really hard to get off of right now. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do, do you think that that was uh, intentional or do you think that this is something companies just didn't really uh, f- had, had have any foresight on? In creating the weed resistance, you mean? Well, just, um, I mean, just like you said, right, weed resistance, insect insect resistance. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. It's just got worse. And I kind of wonder if you're creating a dependent situation and you're the person selling the seed and the chemical. Um <laughs> <laughs> and again, well, I, I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> there's certainly people who believe that. I have an attorney quoted in my book who likens the, you know, Monsanto and the others in the industry to drug dealers. You know, he says they they get these people hooked, uh, and then they they you know they profit. The people, the farmers, don't know how to get off of it. Um, there was certainly ample warning. I mean. It, environmental scientists were warning Monsanto. And again, I quote these people in my book, it wasn't a secret, you know, they sent letters and they had meetings and with the EPA and with Monsanto. And they said, this is going to create a nightmare in farm country. This is going to create weed resistance mm. like you wouldn't believe. And Monsanto kept saying, nah, it's not, won't happen, will never happen, don't worry about it. And they convinced the EPA not to worry about it until about 2012 when they said, oh, well, gosh, I guess you were right. We shouldn't really worry about it. And and the solution that they introduced, Monsanto and the others, was let's just use more chemicals. So... Yeah. And it it seems to me, I mean, as as someone who's taught nutrition and the environment for the better part of twelve years, you know, when you look at the trajectory since World War II, what we actually find is that, and I'm not going to, I'll probably botch the stats a little bit here, but around 1940, somewhere around there, there were about six or seven pests that were resistant. I think now we have well over 700 somewhere around there. So it's sort of, you know, we knew back then and we could look back in time over the last few decades and and sort of see that this is what was coming. So uh, to me, it's a little bit alarming that this stuff just got pushed through into into policy and just got accepted. Um, It, It is very alarming because, again, you know, outside scientists whose job it is, you know, to understand weed, there are things, you know, there's a job called a weed scientist and these weed scientists were telling the EPA this will happen. You know, your listeners may not think weeds are a very big deal, but um, for a farmer and for food production, they really are. Um, mm-hmm. You have to figure out a way to handle the weeds, you know, or you can't grow enough food. Your, your yields will be shot because the weeds will steal the moisture and the nutrients from the soil. And um, so you, you do need to, to take care of them. But what we've also found is that when you're spraying repeatedly with these chemicals, not only do the weeds are become resistant, but you also are essentially, you know, degrading the soil quality. You're killing off mm-hmm. the microorganisms in the soil, and you make it ever harder for the plant to actually be healthy and to fight off disease, and um, you know, and to maintain the nutrients that you expect and, and uh, hope for. 
so you know it is just a vicious cycle you 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 pollute the water, you pollute the air, you degrade the soil, you create weed resistance. It's not a sustainable system by any means, but in the short mm-hmm. term, it's an incredibly profitable one for these companies. Right. And, you know, we, we've seen uh, I'm, the studies out there to sort of show, I mean, the USDA database itself, I think the British um Journal of Medicine or Journal of Nutrition, you know, both of those have shown the decline in nutrient levels, for example, in food uh, since the 1940s till now. I mean, the nutrient levels, uh, all nutrients have have actually gone down in food crops. And I think this is part of it, you know, the microorganisms in the soil and, and things that you've mentioned before. But, you know, knowing this, um, I, I guess the next logical question then becomes, why is there so much um pushback and pushback from the public and what i mean by this is people jumping to the defense of companies like monsanto and that you know i mean surely there can't just be half a world full of of trolls um you know there are people that legitimately believe that this is the way forward you know that gmos chemicals glyphosate is perfectly safe and it just baffles me uh, to some degree and and i just wonder if you had any insights on that well, I mean, there, again, there's, I guess, several answers. So here in the U.S., at least, and, and I believe this is the case in Europe and other places, Monsanto and the chemical companies spread their money around, you know, quite a bit. And so, you know, the Soybean Association, the Wheat Growers Association, the Corn Growers Association, I mean, these groups rely on and look to the companies for funding um, as well as for you know the the products that they need and with consolidation these companies have taken a real uh, stranglehold on the seed and and chemicals market monsanto before it was acquired by bayer monsanto was the largest seed company in the world um, Mm -hmm. controlling not only you know corn and soybeans and things like that but also vegetable seeds maybe which people didn't realize so um you know to a degree the i mean the farmers don't they're, they're not going to fight their supplier you know of their livelihood True. they True. rely on these companies uh, and the companies in turn do provide value you know they provide seeds and chemicals and fertilizers and things that do help these farmers in the short term the problem is when you get out of balance and when you hide the risks and you and you you know put out this propaganda and you push for ever ever more and more and more um, of these of these crops and these chemicals, and you push farmers into changing sort of time tested and proven farming techniques. You get them away from crop rotation. You get them away from cover crops. These things that do protect the health of the soil and do protect biodiversity that farmers have been doing for years. The chemical companies are pushing them instead for monocropping. Let's just grow more corn, more corn, more corn, more soybeans over year after year after year after year, which which is terrible um, for the crop, for the soil, you know, for everybody, yeah. of course, except, again, the companies selling the seeds and the chemicals. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, I mean, Captain Obvious, that uh, they've done a great job at marketing things, you know, the sound bites that we hear uh, for this type of agriculture, you know, feed the world, um, higher yields, all this sort of stuff. And uh, I, I guess what we're starting to see now is that this 
it's just not the case. Um, you know, obviously yields are, are debatable, but uh, definitely soil quality, health, and of course the health of the farmers. I mean, that's something that you uh, really cover quite extensively in, in your book, um, especially in the early part. So t- talk to me a little bit more about that. Like what's actually happening on the ground with farmers that are now being affected by glyphosate in terms of their health? I mean, you've obviously spoken to a lot of these people. So do you feel the tide is turning a little bit? People are starting to wake up? Um, farmers are experiencing this? Yeah, you know what I find is, so if you're a farmer and you, so first of all, farmers understand that the pesticides that they use, if they use pesticides, they understand that they're dangerous, right? I mean, that's from day one because they are, mm. you know, and they come with warnings and they, there's applicator training and they are supposed to try to do their very best to protect themselves. And there's a whole array of protective gear and apparatus and techniques and strategies that you're supposed to do to keep this stuff, you know, from your skin and from inhaling it. And you don't want it on your clothes when you walk in your house. So they understand it's dangerous from the outset, but they take that risk if they're, if they decide they're going to use it. Um, so if, if farmers who, and they've been told in particular that glyphosate or besides are more safe than others and they don't Mm -hmm. cause cancer. And so I think a lot of them, unless they have cancer, (laughs) unless they've become sick, you know, that's what they are going to continue to hold on to and to believe. But, you know, more and more and more, I get literally in my email inbox and sometimes handwritten letters every week from people around the world who are saying, you know, my father, my brother, you know, my, myself, you know, mm-hmm. develop the, these, these cancers after using this chemical for so long. And, um, you know, it's, that's what's so sad about it. Um, and if you look at the agricultural health study, which is this giant long-term study that our government has been doing uh, for 20, 30 years now, well, since the, since the early 1990s, you know, they track farm families specifically because they know that pesticide exposure, um, you know, causes cancers and Parkinson's disease and, you know, birth birth defects and reproductive problems. And um, so these farmers, to a certain extent, are guinea pigs uh, as we really still try to uh, follow the science and understand what this heavy use of pesticides and food production is doing to human health. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll we'll talk about the most recent court cases, um, you know, last summer, and of course the very recent one, which just wrapped up, I think, last week or so. But you know, of course, what goes hand in hand with all of these increased health concerns um, and the things that you just mentioned is, of course, this massive pushback. And when you start getting onto social media platforms and that, I mean, it's such a heated debate that's so polarized that a lot of people just dismiss it completely. You know, they sort of say, well, look, it was told that it was safe. There's no science to show that it's not safe. Therefore, you know, what you're saying uh, just doesn't add up, uh, which which I find quite concerning because it's almost a situation of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, uh, you, you know, instead of actually having a nuanced discussion about this. Well, and the actual truth is the opposite. <laughs> there's a wealth okay. Well, great. Please wealth, t- I mean, tell me more. <laughs> there's a wealth of published peer-reviewed science that shows a cancer connection. Uh, where are all the studies that show no cancer connection? You know that that good point. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's the issue. I mean, there are so many uh, published peer-reviewed studies that show a cancer connection that are. International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, 
said this, we're going to classify this as a probable human carcinogen with an association to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And that is based on a review of decades of uh, toxicology studies, uh, which are done with laboratory animals that showed, you know, animals exposed to glyphosate or glyphosate-based herbicides routinely developed tumors, whereas animals who were not did not. You know, when they were kept mm-hmm. uh, in similar circumstances. And there are numerous epidemiology studies as well, tracking um, people who have been exposed. There's a very interesting study uh, out of people who were exposed uh, through aerial spraying in uh, the Columbia area who they looked at their blood. They took blood samples and they could see that the people who were exposed had very distinct uh, DNA changes, uh, cancerous changes in their, in their DNA. Mm-hmm. Whereas people living in the same circumstances who were not sprayed did not. So, you know, they looked at all of that evidence. Now Monsanto and Bayer and the others say, oh, no, no, no. The science, that all of that science from all those different independent researchers, all of those years, all around the world, those are all just crazy and wrong. And our secret studies that we pay for and <laughs> do and don't publish and don't let anybody review, those are the ones that are actually true. And those show no concern uh, and no cause for cancer. So, you know, I mean, you can. I mean, how, how how does this happen in 2019? I just it's 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 quite astounding to me that we can just pass this all off and say, hey, you know what? We've got our own studies, but we can't show you. But just trust us. And this trickles down into government policy and is you know uh, affects everyone. I mean, everyone eating food, right, but yeah. of, of course farmers, <laughs> which is mind blowing. It's, it's our system here. We protect confidential business information. They, they refer to these studies as trade secrets and confidential business information. And so they present them to regulators, but they never have to publish them or subject them to peer review by outside scientists. Um, and I mean, even these studies though, we know for a fact because of internal documents that, that you know, I and others have obtained that one of the very first studies, a long-term rodent study that Monsanto paid for and gave to the EPA to look at uh, back in the 1980s, the, you know, it showed the same thing. It showed that the mice who were exposed to the glyphosate uh, developed rare tumors and all the mice in the control group did not. And the EPA scientists at that time in the 80s said, wow, this looks like it causes cancer. <laughs> I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the emails, we have yeah, the yeah. emails, and they are very concerned. And they say, we should classify this as a possible carcinogen because that's what this science is showing us. And Monsanto said no and refused to redo the study and worked their magic with the higher-ups at the EPA and brought in their own scientists to tell the EPA mm-hmm. how to interpret the data. And uh and they changed the classification. So wh- one thing that I came across many years ago now is some of the first studies that were done on GMOs, so not on glyphosate. And I believe that this is a common theme when it comes to studying GMOs is we do, quote unquote, long-term studies on animals, but we don't actually run them to the full extent of what long-term really is, meaning that we stop the trial after three months and we say, hey, look, everything is good. But if you keep the trial going for six months, that's when the real health uh, con- issues start cropping up, uh, tumors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so, which would, of course, then be a little bit more extrapolated onto human longevity, in a sense, and more of a chronic situation. So do you feel that this, the same type of studies that are being done on glyphosate, where we're sort of stopping things short and saying, hey, 
look, everything is good. But if we kept them going on those animal studies, the truth would really come out. Well, again, I'm not a scientist, so I, you know, would defer to <laughs> there. There's certainly a number of scientists who who say that's a very big problem that there is okay. a lack of long-term studies. One thing Monsanto has admitted, and that was introduced as evidence in these trials, is that they never have conducted a long-term carcinogenicity study on their formulated products on Roundup. And so this is their own admission. Right. They've acknowledged they, they've never done it. They've wow. never conducted a long-term study on whether or not the products they're selling in the marketplace cause cancer. So, you know, to me, I mean, I guess I, I not my mind is not blown anymore, but when you first wrap mm-hmm. the head around that, it's pretty, you know, amazing that these products that are in our food and in our water and that we're spraying in our backyard, you know, in sandals and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And things and it's being absorbed into the skin and uh, that's never been tested on a long-term basis for whether or not it can cause cancer, um, not by Monsanto anyway. Right. So, so let, let you know, you just mentioned it. Let's just hop right into it because there's been a couple of landmark cases. So the first one was last summer um, where uh, I believe his name was Dwayne Johnson. Is that correct? And yeah, I think it was by Lee, uh, but his, his name is Dwayne. Okay. So can you, can you share a little bit more about that case and uh, what, just for our listeners, what, what happened? What were the findings? Yeah, so Lee um, is in his 40s, and he's got two kids, and he uh, worked for the Benicia School District there, uh, north of San Francisco. I think it's north. <laughs> I get turned around when I get up there, but um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he big part of his job. He was groundskeeper. Big part of his job was to spray um, herbicides, and he used Ranger Pro quite a bit, which is a Monsanto glyphosate herbicide, very concentrated, um, very intense, and sprayed it, you know most days on his job because he was responsible for grounds for multiple schools in this district and um, he had a couple of accidents where uh, the spray tank broke and he got doused in it and he also just in regular use of it it would you know when the wind blows it drifts onto your cheeks and skin and he did wear protective gear but it didn't cover him completely and um, after after two big accidents where he was doused pretty well in it his skin just started developing lesions and you know sores and wounds and things and he went to numerous doctors and eventually was diagnosed with um, uh, uh, a type of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that manifests on the skin and it worsened to the point that he was um, declared terminal uh, mm. and was been given a short amount of time to live he's you know, I've been in touch with him. He's been going through various rounds of chemotherapy and um, really suffers a great deal because of the, the sores and wounds. They crack and they bleed and they're all over his body and his head and his eyes and his oh. face. But anyway, um, so yeah, so his was the first to go to trial and uh, the lawyers presented all of the scientific evidence that shows that it can cause cancer. And in addition, they presented internal Monsanto records that showed that the company um, every time there's been a risk uh, shown in an outside study, rather than investigate the risk and uh, do their own analysis, they have worked to harass the scientists, cover up the risks, um, you know, influence regulators to ignore the risks. Um, the judge in the case, the judge in both of these cases as well, you know, agreed with the attorneys and said, 
it doesn't look like Monsanto cares if its product causes cancer. It's more interested in covering covering it all up. So um, that's what caused the jury <laughs> to get very angry. The jury awarded $289 million for Mr. Johnson. Wow. So, of course, you know, the, the critics will say that a jury found you guilty, but there's still no scientific proof that this really causes cancer. And to me, that's also equally astounding. Um, but, you know, a bit of a sidebar. Uh, the the latest case that just wrapped up last week, I think it was. I think I saw you do some some uh, Facebook lives on that. Can you share a little bit more about that case? So this is Edwin Hardiman, and he's an older man, and he sprayed uh, Roundup around his property for twenty some years with a backpack sprayer, um, two gallon backpack sprayer, which again is is a more dangerous exposure because you're just out there and you're carrying the stuff on your back with a wand and you're spraying it and so wind and you know whatever it's going to get on your skin and the studies um, from in, internal Monsanto studies as well as external show that there's a real concern with dermal absorption with how if this gets on your skin how quickly it's absorbed mm. into and gets into your bloodstream where it can move throughout your body so um, he uh, also has non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and uh, you know the lawyers used pretty much the same evidence they used in the Hardiman case or in the Johnson case, though they were also able to present testimony from uh, the former chairman of Monsanto, Hugh Grant, and um, you know, and some additional additional findings that they that they got from internal Monsanto documents. They have a discovery process that's ongoing in which the court has ordered Monsanto to turn over its own internal emails and records and uh, mm. reports. And that's what's really undone the company because that's how you do see how little uh, they cared about the studies that show it causes cancer and how much they cared about protecting their profits. So in in a sense, what we're saying is the investigation uncovered internal documents that show that the product does cause cancer, in fact, but this was all just sort of buried. And anyone who's doing independent science to prove otherwise is just sort of branded as a, as a charlatan or whatever, you know, like pseudoscience and whatnot, uh, which, you know, I don't know, that's it, that doesn't make anyone feel good. Um, at least it shouldn't anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's an important email that they've cited numerous times, and I, I have it in my book as well, that, um, you know, Donna Farmer, lead toxicologist for many years for Monsanto, saying mm -hmm. we cannot say that Roundup does not cause cancer. We don't know that. We've never done the test. We can't say that. Um so, you know, it's, and then you also have a deposition from Sam Murphy, internal Monsanto PR guy, basically. And he's talking about how they're going to spend $17 million in one year alone to try to discredit these cancer scientists who are wow. raising alarm bells about glyphosate. So, wow. Um, so in, in, in addition to, I mean, obviously, there's a, most of the sort of health risk has been uh, put on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but I know that there are other health concerns as well. Do, do you know much more about that or anything that's sort of smoking gun or? <laughs> smoking gun. I don't. I mean, there's there are certain scientific studies and analysis people are tracking, for instance, um, uh, glyphosate levels in the urine of pregnant women and how that mm -hmm. uh, correlates with birth outcomes. And some data that's been published shows that if you have the higher the levels of this weed killer in this, you know, the bodily fluids of pregnant women, the worse their birth outcomes are. Um, 
you know, shorter gestation, lower birth rates, things like that. So, you know, there's an array of an array of reproductive concerns. There have been yeah. suits that were um, brought over birth defects um, from farmers in South America who said that their, you know, women, their wives were exposed and uh, they had large amounts of birth defects in their children. Because those skyrocketed once they started planting more GMOs and spraying down there, no? If I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah. I mean, those particular lawsuits that I'm referring to now were dealing with tobacco um, farms. Okay. Okay. So, um, but but yes, they've had a number of that. So, um, the some of the studies, including the agricultural health study that I mentioned earlier, has shown an association with acute myeloid leukemia uh, and glyphosate use. Um, you know, some of the studies with the rodents, you know, kidney and liver function problems. And there are some scientists who are analyzing how glyphosate interacts in the gut because, of course, we know it kills off bacteria. Yeah. Healthy bacteria yeah. in the gut is very important for the immune system and overall health um, to their concerns that it's uh, it's affecting you know, gut health. Um, so, but again, mm-hmm. the, the science, the most established weight of science pertains to cancer. And perhaps that's because that's what people are most concerned or looking about, but all of these other health problems uh there's definitely scientific discussion percolating around those as well yeah well especially the gut i mean so as a functional medicine practitioner myself who's you know that's my wheelhouse is the health side of things uh yeah i mean gut health is just so important these days and we're starting to see its connection with so many other different sort of seemingly unrelated um illnesses and conditions so yeah you know anytime you've got this happening in the gut uh which we should all be concerned about other things as well but one thing um that i think is important for people to know as well you know i hear this a lot and I, i do like to play devil's advocate just so that we get a balanced discussion we hear that uh glyphosate is water soluble therefore it cannot accumulate in the body uh you know i i've been hearing that a lot and uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff and um, a- Anthony Samsell and those folks yeah. uh, who are, yeah, who are now showing that we actually do have long-term stores in our body, and you know when we analyze bone, we analyze teeth and stuff and so on. Uh, glyphosate is actually accumulating in our deeper tissues, which is which is quite concerning. And this, I believe, is what we were not told. Uh, is, is that correct? I'm familiar with their work, yeah, and it it definitely is concerning. You're right, though. I mean, industry, Monsanto and others admit, of course, that it's it's found, and and they understand that research shows that it's found in human urine as well as in feces. Um, They say that is a good thing, as you said. That's a good thing. That shows that the body Mm -hmm. is excreting uh, this weed killer that has somehow become, you know. Maybe because there's so much. (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, I think... The, the important thing to think when you talk about it not accumulating as well um, is that, yeah, maybe if you were exposed one time, you know, right. but we're being exposed every day uh, mm-hmm. to this to this chemical. Um, our, as I mentioned, our U.S. Geological Survey, our government scientists have even found it in rainfall samples. So wow. it's wow. air samples, rainfall, surface waters, drinking water. Our food, you know, I've been talking to bottled water companies that say people don't want to know this, but it's in bottled water. And do you find, um, just correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that the because there is it's so pervasive now, uh, EPA has actually raised the acceptable residue limits. Is that correct? 
Well, uh, yes, they they're different. So maximum residue levels (MRLs) um, are set for foods and chemicals in which it's reasonably expected that pesticide residues are going to, mm-hmm. you know, exist and persist in these foods. And so for glyphosate, and it's, so it's not just for one food, you know, for glyphosate, it would be for over a hundred different foods that they would have MRLs and the MRLs are yeah. going to be different. Um, but yes, Monsanto has gone back to them multiple times and said, can you, you've said this level is safe, but you know what, we want to use more of it or we want to encourage people to use it differently. So can you raise what you've already said is a safe level? <laughs> and, and so, you know, yeah, shift so the goalpost basically. Right, shift the goalpost. So, you know, more and more and more is considered legal and safe and the EPA continues to do that. Um, so, and, I, and I believe that this is different. I mean, when you look at Europe, the acceptable levels are quite lower, uh, quite a lot lower than, than ours, no? Um, in most cases, yeah. I mean, again, it's different for every food and every chemical, but... Um, sure, sure. But, but just generally speaking. America has the highest uh, MRLs of any other country in the world, generally speaking, for glyphosate. Hmm. Um, so I think, Kerry, we've covered a lot of ground um, with this. Uh, I think there is one last thing that I would sort of put out there, and it's not 100% tied to glyphosate. But do you think um, with GMOs now, um, obviously, because they are, you know, they're linked with glyphosate, how do you feel about labeling? Like, do you think we're ever going to see labeling of GMOs in North America? Well, of course, if you ask the industry, they say, yes, of course, we have mandatory labeling now, right, um, mm-hmm. uh, from the recently passed law that's been implemented now. But uh, as far as transparent labeling where you can, you know, see it on the product and look and say, you know, is this genetically modified or is it not? The industry's fought really, really hard against that. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that game is lost already or not. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm a supporter of transparency in whatever form. I think consumers deserve honest and forthright information about the food that they consume. Uh, you know, I think the push that I've been hearing now from food companies, you know, we've had the GMO move and, and it still is ongoing, but glyphosate free, pesticide free, consumers are really becoming aware and educated and um, active in telling food companies they want healthier food. They don't want pesticides in the foods they're feeding their kids. And I think that's, um, you know, that's important and uh, a good, Mm -hmm. a good movement. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I had Henry Rowland from uh, the detox project on the podcast uh, a couple, about a month ago, a couple months ago now. And one of the things that cropped up there is a lot of countries, obviously we know that a lot of countries are adopting mandatory labeling for GMOs, which simply means that imports of GMOs or vice versa, exports from uh, North America are going to start going down to those countries because people don't want it. But when you start looking at countries like China, where they're dropping the acceptable levels of residue limits on crops, you know, the the hope is that we will all follow suit and say, hey, you know what, we're going to have to use less of the stuff. But my concern has been, well, that's going to really Uh, push us further down the road of no labeling here in North America. Because if we can't export the crops, we basically have to keep the economy going and we're the ones that are going to have to eat it uh, because there's no one else who is going to buy it. Right. So I know those those are just sort of my musings on the matter. Um, (laughs) It's it's definitely true. I mean, I write about in my book some freedom of information documents where you see gypsum, you know, an arm of our USDA that looks at, grain headed for overseas and you know they 
been testing this for years, looking for mm-hmm. glyphosate residues, because as you say, so many different markets around the world don't want this stuff in their food. Um, and they've been testing for years for foreign markets, but they haven't been testing at all uh, here for the U.S. market. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I guess time will tell. Yeah. Uh, well, Kerry, it's been a great discussion. Thank you so much. And I'm sure we could definitely um, unpack so many more of these points over many hours. But uh, I defer to your awesome book. And um, uh, just before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, anything that might be coming up or you feel is super important for them to check out? And if there is anything, I can throw those down in the show notes um, once this goes live. Oh, sure. Well, I always encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Carrie Gillum. Um, I post a lot of uh, documents, court documents and data that I get from different government agencies, links and, and, you know, pictures of those sorts of things to try to share with people on the Twitter feed. And then, of course, uh, I'm working now at U.S. Right to Know, which is this little tiny nonprofit. And um, we're, again, posting court documents uh, inside internal Monsanto records and things like that for people to take a look at if they're interested. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for those of you listening out there, uh, check out the show notes for today's episode. Uh, I will put live links to all of those. So you can just click and visit that, uh, support what Carrie is doing. Uh, so Carrie, thanks once again for taking the time out and joining me on today's show. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And for those of you listening out there, as always, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing, reviewing, sharing. And, you know, episodes like this, I really feel are important to get out there um, and just keep pushing and keep pushing for change because this stuff affects us all. Uh, Even if you're eating organic, it doesn't matter what type of food you're eating, the stuff is getting everywhere. And that's why you've heard me uh, banging on about this for the last, I don't know how many years. So uh, thanks once again, Carrie. Thanks for you folks listening out there. And wherever you are, you have yourself a beautiful day.